When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Oh What A Time, the history podcast that tries to decide if the past was absolutely rubbish. I'm Tom Crane. I'm Chris Skull. And I'm Ellis James. Each week on this show we'll be looking at a new historical subject and today we're going to be discussing the emergency services. Yes, you know them, the big three. Police. Fire brigade. The AA. (laughs) Deliveroo. (laughs) The big one. That's the feeding of the people. It's it's definitely the fourth emergency service, isn't it? Well, that was the AA's uh, slogan throughout the 90s, wasn't it? The fourth emergency service. Oh, yeah. And the Coast Guard would famously go, uh, hello, excuse excuse me. So not not really... When, it, when it's a bad emergency in a car, you tend to ring the police in an ambulance. You, you, you're more for sort of if, if just someone's broken down. That's it's not really, is it? We're the Coast Guard. I, I, you know, I, I cannot, I, I cannot emphasise that enough. Do you think the AA have a huge chip on their shoulder to the extent that when people are on a flight and they go, is there a doctor on board? The AA guys like, oh, hello. Is this I'm, am I? <laughs> well, I'm kind of now I'm the fourth emergency service. Yeah, but I mean, a body's like an engine. <laughs> Keep it ticking over, exactly. I could have a look at an exhaust and figure out what's going on. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I jokingly referred to uh, SDI tests as an MOT to my mates in the pub, so it's it's basically the same sort of thing. Isn't it? So, what period of history are you looking at? I'm going to be looking at fire in ancient Rome, the fire service in ancient Rome. What about you, Chris? What are you looking at? The start of the ambulance services, right through to the present day, but we'll start in the late 1700s. I am going to be looking at the development of the police force. Shall we begin, though, with some correspondence? Let's do that. I thought what could be fun is actually to kick off with some reviews. Often our listeners will leave reviews in Latin or in different ancient languages for our fun. And we've got another one of those. Would you like to hear it and try and guess what has been written? Um, this one says, Preclarium est audi, fiam siendi sunt ridaculum, itami adviant ultimatorium, <laughs> pretatorium cognitium consequata, securius five sedus, you might get that one, uh, <laughs> volo erum capulus mensam. There you go. I'd like to guess what that says. I honestly lost you after the first syllable. <laughs> Was it, I didn't realise I could love a podcast more than members of my own family until I listened to Oh What a Time. And I became a deep, profound part of my life. Is that what it means? It's not far off. It's, it's great to hear. They know the team is funny. Thus, they help me to gain a greater knowledge of the past. Thus, it's quite yeah. a choice to yeah. go to put it in, in English with the word thus and then yeah. translate it into Latin. <laughs> Easy five star. I wish I had a coffee table. There you go. That's, uh... <laughs> there I think, though, actually, I've got to hold my hands up and I'm going to use some Latin now. I need to do a mea culpa. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's our first correction section. Mm-hmm. 
I think you'll find it's the correction section. Yeah, it's a correction section. Correction section. Correction section. Right, I hold my hands up. On the last episode, I can't believe this is our first correction section, I implied that the Americans celebrate Independence Day on the 5th of July. I now know, of course, it's the 4th of July. We've all seen the Tom Cruise film. Sorry, Tim in Kansas, Olivia Kinghorn, Chris Frampton. Yes, I accept it was the 4th of July. I can't believe we didn't pick you up on that. <laughs> no, I didn't. The I didn't 5th even of July. When the clean, when the, there's, no fi- there's no films like cle- Tom Cruise where they're just doing a big clean-up. When <laughs> 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 they put a load of stuff. <laughs> putting a load of stuff in black bin bags. Oh, I'm amazed we didn't pick you up on that. So apologies to our American listeners. Chris, what, what, what's it like to make a mistake? <laughs> what's that feel like? Because I've, I've, I've seen it, I've seen it happen, and I've heard about them, but I've never. Is it embarrassing? Does it feel? Do you take the, does it take the wind out your sails? Confidence has been rocked, I assume. Yeah. That's fine. I had, my first instinct was that I couldn't have said that. And then I listened back. Oh, no, I did say it. Uh, actually, on the, on the 4th of July, I was at American Independence Day, 4th of July, 1776. I did do a little bit of Googling to try and figure out, is there a way I can lie my way out of this scenario? Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> and could I say, you know, because we're a few hours ahead in the UK when it's 5th of oh, July. Oh, good show, yeah. Well, mm. But the 4th of July isn't actually the, the American Independence Day technically. Because it's the day the Americans declared independence, but it's not the day that the British agreed, no, you have independence. That's the 3rd of September with the Treaty of Paris. So the Americans okay. declared it, the War of Independence, and they do eventually get their independence. Doesn't really help you out the 3rd of September. Doesn't help me out. To, to use an American Steve Bannon, flood the zone with shit. And that's what I've just <laughs> t- attempted to do here. Is there enough? Is there enough? Yeah. Have I muddied the waters enough that I could emerge from this on stage? It feels like Alan Partridge when he says, suffice to say, I had the last laugh. You're definitely <laughs> looking for your your way to to beat America. Actually, America, I think you'll find <laughs> that I'm correct. That would endear us to our American listeners from across the Atlantic, <laughs> wouldn't it? Yeah. You're all wrong. You're all wrong. <laughs> One nil, lighty. <laughs> now, L, have we had correspondence about the greatest format point in, uh, you know, world podcasting? Out of interest, we certainly have. Should we hear the jingle? It's the one day time machine. 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 This is from Alfie in Liverpool. Hello, chaps. First of all, I would like to thank you for digging up my inner history nerd that has been buried underneath layers of the corporate world and adulthood. Your podcast is always the highlight of my week. That's very kind of you, Alfie. For my one-day time machine, I'd like to go back in time to the Stone Age with as much modern technology as I can fit in my pockets, scare the crap out of everyone with things like alarm clocks and calculators, and finish off the day by finding my ancestors and giving them a solar-powered electric whisk. (laughs) Fingers crossed when I come back, my family's dynasty has lived on. We rule the world, or at least for a bit, and I sneak my way into the Stone Age equivalent of the Bible. Nice one, Alfie from Liverpool. The problem is... (laughs) You'd have to you'd have to be going back to Stone Age with all of that stuff pre-charged, <laughs> well, because it would be so, it would be so disappointing to find your Stone Age ancestors and say, "Look at this, it's an electric whisk. You won't know what electricity is, but you'll be impressed." And then you, you press the button, and just nothing happens. You'd look like <laughs> such a pillock. Yeah, you're getting clubbed over the head in a heartbeat. I do need to point something out. He has described it as a solar-powered electric whisk. 
So yes. he has. He's got there ahead of you. The other items. That is true. But, but the alarm clocks and the calculators. The alarm clock is an issue. Yeah. Unless it's a wind up. Won't be able to. Yeah. You wouldn't be able to plug them in. So you'd need a wind-up alarm clock. Calculator, the battery, you know, a battery can last years on a calculator. I think my big concern, and this, I think this is a, is a, is a fair question, is during the Stone Age, what do you need to get up for? What is there that, what do you need to set an alarm for in the Stone Age? Surely sunrise is your alarm. That's when you go, that's when this, yeah. the attempting to survive starts again. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Before you get to sleep and forget about the attempting to survive part of your life. Tomorrow, can I ever lie in from attempting to survive? Exactly. You know what? Three meals a day. Three meals a day. It's a bit of a faff now. Like you've got to run it. You you make sure your fridge is stocked, or you're out and about. Got to grab a sandwich, whatever. Uber the fourth. You know, Uber eats the fourth emergency service. (laughs) In the Stone Age, you're waking up and you're like, right, I've got to scrabble for this first meal. And two hours later, you go scrabbling again. You know, what an existence! Every day trying to hunt, always having to having to catch breakfast. I find it not my sons make me make them pancakes quite a lot, and I find that really annoying. Yeah. The idea they said, "Dad, can you go and catch me a pig?" I fancy a hog roast. Yeah. And at seven in the morning, I'm running around Clapton, desperately trying to find an animal to catch. It just that doesn't trying to get in the petting zoo. And there's a picture of you behind the desk. Do not let this man in. He's only going to try and steal the pigs. <laughs> I refuse to um, make pancakes for my kids. Oh, why is that? It's just too much hassle. <laughs> <laughs> refuse? I'm like, I'll eat you. Eat, I'll let you eat Nutella out of the jar, it sort of <laughs> as a compromise. But I'm not making you a pancake. We can Google image them if you want, and you can imagine them. <laughs> I'm not getting the butter out. No chance. Quick roll call as to the reactions of these different things. Your your uh, Stone Age people. First thing, uh, the alarm clock. Are you particularly interested in that? The noise would freak them out. Yes. So what you'd have to do, you'd have to do that thing that I haven't done for years, where, say the time is five past five, you set the alarm for five or six. So then you're like, listen, lads, honestly, this is great. Watch this. Hang on. So it's five past five now. No, 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 no. In a minute. Uh, an alarm's going to go you, well, you wait And then you, you'd set the alarm for five or six And then you're like And now we wait yeah. <laughs> 60 seconds Do you think if you could, if you could communicate with a, a caveman You're going back and you go with an alarm clock going This tells you the time yeah. Surely they're going Sorry, what, what the fuck is the time? What yeah. do you mean the time? I had a phone once, Ellis This was such a bad design point Where if you wanted to choose your alarm You couldn't listen to it Unless you set it as an alarm. So every time you wanted to try a new alarm thing, you would have to choose, as you say, one minute later and then sit there and wait and then go, no, that's not the one. That's really annoying. We'll try again. And then you'd set another one for a minute later and you'd sit there in silence on your own in your bedroom. <laughs> Waiting to see what green green sleeve sounded like on a Nokia. Um I, th- I agree with you. I think as soon as the alarm goes off, they're smashing it with a club. I think that's basically what's going to happen. I think <laughs> yeah, that's the best you can hope. Uh, minimum. Calculator? Again. I don't care. Yeah. Even if even if you wrote rude words with, in sort of upside down, they, they don't care. I think the one invention a caveman would be well into, a solar-powered fridge. You're like, you can go kill that pig and you can store, yeah. store the meat. It'll be good for weeks. It'll cut like, don't need to go out and hunt fresh yeah. meat every day. Pop it in the yes. fridge. 
You don't have to, you don't have to you don't have to salt anything to to keep it. Yeah. Uh, which 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 is good for your cholesterol. You don't care about cholesterol. That's fine. I'm going to tell you about cholesterol now. So the fridge, if they someone had somewhere to plug it in, would be a, be an absolute game changer. Free up time for recreation, all that sort of stuff. More drawing on cave walls, whatever they did back then. No no nowhere to plug it in. So you're like, listen, it's uh, I've charged it up. <laughs> you are going to have fresh food for eight hours and then. <laughs> <laughs> and then back to how everything was before. Yeah. Then you just treat it as a caravan after that, just sleep in it. <laughs> Take the drawers out and just sleep in it at night. <laughs> this fridge is cold right now because I've just unplugged it, but it's, it's going to get hotter yeah, throughout yeah, yeah. the day. It's going to start to smell a bit weird in a couple of days' time, and 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 then actually, it's it's not a gift; it's a sort of it's a burden. It's it's yeah. it's, it's a problem. I've given you oh, a problem. One more thing before I go: there's some weird gases in the back that I don't really understand. Probably don't mess with it. <laughs> oh, you know the other thing a caveman would love that I can't even wrap my head around an air fryer. Like I'm here in 2023, I've just got an air fryer. I'm like, how is what is this wizardry? Yeah. Yeah, George Foreman Grill. <laughs> yeah. There will be a boxer in a few hundred thousand years' time. <laughs> and and Muhammad Ali, um, he, he's actually banned from boxing because he's refused the draft. And, and in the meantime, he has become the, the one. And, it, and it's a golden age for heavyweight boxing, right? You don't know what heavyweight boxing is. That, that's fine. <laughs> I'll, I'll forget it. <laughs> I don't know why I bother. Um, before we move on to our next bit of correspondence, <clears throat> I've had an idea for something I'd like our listeners to send us, which is I want to know what the one-day time machine looks like. So if oh. people have an idea for what they think it looks like, what buttons it has, do a drawing and send it to us on our email address or on Instagram, and we will post them on social media, our favourite ones. I want to see what does this look like. Let's find out once and for all. Great idea. Can you kick us off, Cray? Can you kick us off with the first drawing? I will kick... I will. I will do that this week. I will do will Do, do you know what? You've hit upon such a good format point there. The buttons in the one-day time machine. <laughs> yeah. Because they could do anything. Should we say there's a, a minimum of three buttons and we want to know what they do? Big question. Oh. Is there a big red one that says eject? <laughs> what are your three buttons, Ellis? Uh, air conditioning. Nice. <laughs> we, I don't even have that in my car. So I'd absolutely love that. I'll just pack it up. Uh, electric windows and the hazards. <laughs> you're not putting your windows down while you're travelling through time. That's quite a risk. <laughs> Your head would get stuck down and you wouldn't know in which which era or century you'd end up. You'd be on the way back to fifteen hundred and you get sucked out in eighteen hundred. When you rush through a portal, it's always like equations and numbers flying around as well. I get decapitated by like the percentage sign or something like that. <laughs> I'm sticking my head out to see what it looks like. Some bloke's head next to a plus and minus sign because he stuck his head out the electric windows. Hell, <laughs> I can't believe your time machine has electric windows. Like a, the Ford Cortina of time machines or something. Categorically the worst idea anyone has ever had. And, and the third button? It can't get any worse. Let's find out. What's the third button? It's the hazards. It's the hazards. Okay, that's fine. Warning head on the road. <laughs> When you're when you're parked up in in twelve fifty, you're on Temple Yellows. I like it. Well, actually, the hazard is it's kind of useful if you if you're going back somewhere in the last fifty years. If you're yes, only going back yeah. to the seventies and you're parking, you know, 
in yeah. Soho, and you, you know, if you're going them, back be like a million years, the land of the dinosaurs, <laughs> I would imagine hazards are the last thing you want blinking in the night. Because <laughs> the T Rex is going, what the fuck is that? <laughs> it's the bad idea. All of us huddled in the time she going to L. Why have you picked hazards as the third party? <laughs> All right, you horrible lot. Here's how you can stay in touch with the show. You can email us at hello at ohwhatatime.com and you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at ohwhatatimepod. Now, clear off. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Okay, well, it's the emergency services today, and I will be talking about uh, the development of various police forces. And I'll be talking about the ambulance. And I am going to be talking to you about the fire service, and more specifically, the fire service in ancient Rome. Okay, um, would you like to guess what the big difference between the fire service then and now was? Any idea? Uh, Less pole-based... It is. They hadn't invented the pole, so they just had to jump through that little hole in the, in the floor and just hope for the best. So many broken ankles. <laughs> Hobbling to a big fire. <laughs> There's got to be a better way. I can't help you out the building. I'm so sorry. <laughs> My ankles are shot. Um, no. Well, there, are, there, are, there are a number of differences, as you, as you will find out as I, as I discuss this, but there, there, there's always been... An issue. Basically, urban populations have always faced the danger of fire. That's been part of sort of city life ever since it started. Yeah. So, most great cities have somewhere in the history story of a time where a large part of it burned down. I'll give you some examples: the Great Fire of London in 1666. Then, a century later, in 1776, New York was ablaze, and then over a hundred years after that, in 1897, Paris was on fire. Basically, throughout history, cities have erupted into flames. So. Uh, in ancient Rome, though, uh, it was no different. This is the point. It was like, as cities have always been, um, it was especially vulnerable to fire uh, Rome. Uh, the Great Fire of Rome, which broke out broke out in July 64 AD, burnt for six days, destroyed nearly three quarters of the city and gave rise to the accusation that the Emperor Nero had fiddled, that's what they said, which was just playing his lyre rather than actually doing anything about it, which actually proved not to be true. Because I think even from an emperor's point of view, who could be arseholes, watching your city burn down and going, no, I've got to finish my music lesson, does feel like quite a... Yeah. Like, it feels like big quite call. a decision to... Yeah, a big call, exactly. But in contrast, a devastating fire in 6 AD led Nero's predecessor, the Emperor Augustus, and this is what I want to talk to you about, to actually act and do something about it. And he established the first fire brigade in ancient Rome, okay? And these guys were called the Vigils. And they were also given a nickname called the Soritali. Uh, would you like to guess what this sexy nickname stood for? Uh, Smoky Boys? <laughs> <laughs> it's not 
far off. It's the little bucket fellows. <laughs> if I'd worked my way up into this really sort of, you know, heroic position, I'd be thinking, surely I'll be getting something. It's been given to them because of the little buckets they carried water around him. Be- because the fire brigade or firemen are notoriously sexy. Yeah, exactly. Like that's yeah, that's you know strippers dresses as firemen. They they don't they don't dress as app developers, do they? <laughs> yeah, it's a sort of sexy job. They don't dress as podcasters. But maybe that'll change, Ellis. Maybe in time. Maybe in twenty years, or the currency of becoming an app developer shifts. It might be you'll go. To, people go to a strip club, and there'll be a guy in a sort of you know dark ring specs. Can you imagine how disappointing you disappointed you'd be? <laughs> If on your hen night your mate had organised a stripper and the stripper turned up and he was dressed as a podcaster. Because <laughs> of plaid shirt. Slowly removing the big headphones. <laughs> Looking you straight in the eye. So, before then, there had been private firefighting teams, um, but these firefighters were all slave and funded by their patrons. But under Augustus... Uh, when he set up this first fire service, the firefighters would be funded by taxation for the first time. And there was a force of 6,000 of them. Now, I'll tell you what their job was. Their, their job was quite weird. Their job was to walk around Rome and try and spot potential fires. That's what you do. So it wasn't like... That's a really inefficient way of firefighting, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's a really weird job, isn't it? <laughs> uh, what feel- You've just got to get a real skill for spotting an ember. I don't know what that... <laughs> I don't know how that works. But I suppose you'd be you'd be looking for people who were careless, wouldn't you? It's sort of preventative yes. measure. Which exactly. if you did it well enough actually would is perfect. You don't want your house to go on fire and then be put for it to be put out. You want it to be prevented in the first place. They'd be wandering around looking for people, um, I guess sort of smoking and leaning against hay or whatever it happens to be. <laughs> <laughs> whatever people I don't know what you'd do. They they had a uniform uh, they wore helmets that were similar to the helmets that are worn today. Um, and in their arsenal, they also had familiar equipment. They had axes, buckets, ropes, ladders, a form of fire blanket, which comprised cloth soaked in vinegar and even high-pressure pumps. And they even had a fire engine called the Sifo, which was pulled along by horses and had a high-pressured pump on the back of it. Um, now... There are various ways in which the vigils had to prevent fire. They had to have an accurate knowledge of where the water was so they could transport it in their tiny buckets to the fire. Um, And they would also often prevent fire by soaking large blankets and then throwing those across the fire. But there was also one other key way, and this is kind of this is what's very different to today. Would you like to guess what's the third way you think they prevented fire? And it, it, it speaks to the way these cities were built back then. Oh, I don't know. As a homeowner, you'd you'd find quite annoying. Oh, they'd smash it down. Yeah, in most cases, the best way to prevent flames was to pull down the building with. Oh hooks my and god! I, so- remember, I remember that's how they tra- didn't they try. That's how they tried to stop the Great Fire of London. They were just pulling down the houses on the mm-hmm. outskirts of the fire because that's how you stop it spreading. And then the wind changed. I think that's what I think that's what happened in the Great the Great Fire of London. I feel that like that true, would actually. happen to Ukraine. They'd go right. Yeah, the house is coming down. Ah, I said that. Oh, sorry. Wind change. Didn't need to do that. Yeah. But it, does, it puts a sort of it puts a sort of pressure on whether you're going to call out the fire service if you think there's a big risk of going to turn up and just yank your house down. Yeah. I'd be tempted to just go in it with some buckets of water myself and hope that doesn't happen. Yeah. Can we try the water first? <laughs> no, it's coming down. Can it's we going. try anything else? <laughs> 
so they would yank down the house as, as a way to sort of stop it from spreading. But this this was all very different to um, the private fire brigade that was previously paid for by Marcus Linus Crassus, who was a patron of Julius Caesar. Now, this is crazy. Um, Crassus was famous for extortion, especially the landlords. And according to sources from the time, Crassus would send his firefighters, which were a paid-for group by him, to the location of a fire, and then he would turn up and offer to buy the burning building from its distraught owner. And only then would he put out the fire. So he would turn up with his fire brigade and say, I'm going to give you, here's a massively cut price amount for your building. And if you don't take that, I'm just going to let it burn down anyway. So you might as well take this deal. Grifter. That is horrendous. That's one of the worst people from history. Yeah, yeah. it is. But um, In a packed but... field. <laughs> That's pretty cynical, isn't it? <laughs> But what Augustus um, borrowed with this idea of the vigils from early private forces was the use of slaves as firefighters because it was, it was brutal work. It was physically demanding. Life expectancy was very low. Um, you had to do all the tasks, basically, of modern firefighting, but with none of the protective equipment. So you're basically just running into buildings in your normal yeah, clothes. Yeah, a real nutter's job, that. Yeah, absolutely. In your, in your tunic. A tunic's obviously... Fame, I imagine quite a flammable thing to be wearing as well. So you're running in there wearing your normal clothes, trying to, to rescue people from a fire. Yeah. You'd have to be exceptionally brave slash have a screw loose to be into that. Absolutely. Um, but by Nero's time, most firefighters were freedmen rather than slaves. And the role came with sort of added benefits. For example, um, you get the possibility of Roman citizenship after six years of employment as a firefighter, whereas it took 25 years' service in the army, by contrast, which I think would probably worry me going into it if I said, I, I, I get that the rewards are good, but they, they're, they're five times better than the army, and that does get yeah. quite dangerous, is probably what I'd say. <laughs> it wouldn't, like, really... Yes, absolutely. So it shows you how dangerous this job was, that being in the army, it would, 20, it would take you 25 years to get citizenship. Being in the fire service, you'd get it in, uh, in a mere six. Um before we finish, I just want to tell you about this. So the way that it was structured, it ran along military lines and there were <clears throat> four key roles within the fire service. I'll, I'm going to take, tell you the names of each of them. I want you to try and guess what they are. The Aquari. Do you want to try and guess what the Aquari did? Water. Water. Correct. Acquired water. Aqua. They brought it to the fire. The Siphonari. What do they do? Siphoning uh, water? Yeah. The pumping. They used the pumps. They, 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 they shot the water at the burning building. The emitulari. Let's guess what they were. This is a job you don't want. What, bum wipers? <laughs> the bum wipers of the terrified. <laughs> they were the people that ran into the building. Oh, really? And, oh, and, yeah. And saved the ter- terrified. And then the victimarius. Uh, this is this is the job you do want. This is, I mean, this is ridiculous. This is a Admin. guy whose whose job was uh, <laughs> maintaining uh, the worship of the cult of the emperor and the barrack shrine. So your job was to just look after the barrack shrine. That I can do. Yeah, that sounds like that's an easy. You're looking for a cushy job in history. That's not bad, is it? Do you imagine at the sort of like social get-togethers? 
he's using the language as if we're all in this together. Oh, it's really, you know, it's what a tough year we've had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me polishing that statue, you guys running into buildings wearing just your pants, basically. Yes. We're all the same, though, aren't we? Yeah, tough guys. Yeah, they were pretty tough guys, actually. Uh, I kind of of look after the shrine bit. Yeah, yeah. Not not firefighting as such, but yeah, pretty tough guy. I've done all the training, actually. So he was... People decided it would be best for me to do my job, you know, where, where I am. Right? That's fine. And I agree, actually. And in a way, the shine is what's, the shine is what's keeping everyone safe. So, you know, I'm, you know. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a weight I'm willing to bear. There's um, something about your manner, Tom, that would make you an absolutely fantastic primary school teacher. <laughs> if comedy goes wrong, I know exactly what you're going to do. I thought you were about to say it would make you a fantastic firefighter. And That's I like, exactly what I, I was like. We were what going. are you on about? This no. this man, the, the last no. your house is on fire. This man is the last thing you want to see. You would turn up and go, bloody hell! <laughs> what are we going to do with this? <laughs> Doing that that hand movement that people do when they're a bit hot. Oh, it's a bit hot. When the fire brigade turns up and someone says bloody hell, that is a bad sign. <laughs> Right, so I'm here to talk about ambulances and uh, ambulances as a system is really it's come from the battlefield and I wanted to start by giving you some first person historical experience I've actually been to the site of the Battle of Waterloo they've got a fantastic museum there and you go you see all the amazing outfits of Napoleon's armies and what the Prussians were wearing and what Welling you know I think there's even got maybe Wellington's boots are knocking about there's all these artefacts they're just sensational and there's one area of this uh, of the museum of the, at the Battle of Waterloo and it's talked specifically about the injuries that were sustained by the soldiers on the battlefield that day oh god and i think i'm going to say it i think it's the one of the worst battles for injuries because it's grape shot Tiny little musket balls being fired out of cannons, loads of them, it's obviously cannonballs. Oh. They're the kind of injuries where your legs are getting blown off. You take, you know, you're getting, if it hits your shot, I mean, if it hits your head, you, you're gone. But you get, you, you can yes, sustain please. horrific <laughs> injuries and you'd just be lying on the battlefield. And I think it's, in some ways, I think it's worse than World War One because you're getting machine gun. I think it's so lethal. It's almost like there's less suffering because you're getting gunned down. Right, yeah. Yeah. At the Battle of Waterloo, there are accounts in the days after it, there were still soldiers moaning on the battlefield, unable to move. And, of course, there's no help for them. Oh, Because what can you do? Thousands of people, the, the reports of the battlefield that night, I remember reading just people groaning long into the night with nobody to help them. And this is really, it's these scenes on battlefields that kind of gave birth to the ambulance. Also, what a mad thing to paint. Because they're, they're <laughs> yeah. very... They're, there's lots of famous paintings of battlefield scenes. What artist who's incredibly creative thinks, thinks to themselves, do you know what? I think I'll just draw loads... I think I'll paint loads of suffering, actually. I think, that, <laughs> that, I think that's... Yeah, I'll do that tomorrow. Yeah, that's it. I'll, I'll do flowers tonight and I'll do suffering tomorrow. <laughs> do you think there's... Are they, like... Stood on a neighbouring hill with an easel. It's not like that. Are they, are they painting it like, like a really sort of tough round on watercolour challenge? It's not like that, is it? Are well, they? Well, actually, I would. I think 
when people paint battlefields, they're painting like they glorify the battlefield. Like the charge of the light brigade in paintings like that. It's just seen as a, like a magnificent thing. Actually, it's really horrific. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, you don't... Unless there was sort of a, an understanding then that you didn't attack the painters. But throughout the, <laughs> the battlefield, there were six or seven guys with easels in the midst of it. Like right in the mixer, just painting. <laughs> but do you know, um, one of the things I remember about the, the Battle of Waterloo that, that blew my mind is um, back, that you've got bands... There's, there's guys at the front of the, the kind of the cavalry, like the the army, like marching into the battle, and it like it's got a bagpipe, like the bagpipes. Yeah. Wow. Like just walking, and you're like, that's the job. Why do you want that job? Yeah. It's when the f- the first shot bursts the bagpipe and everyone cheers. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness for no, that. No, they don't cheer. They'd, they'd be the sigh of relief. <laughs> yeah. Both sides. It's the one thing that unifies both sides. At least the bagpipe's not playing anymore. It's like a drum at the football. You're like, oh, God, this is yeah. the last thing we need. Um, Ori Denault from uh, Switzerland, he's the founder of the Red Cross. He had seen the aftermath of the Battle of Solferino in northern Italy. They'd been so moved by the scenes of injured and discarded soldiers that he organised the local population to provide voluntary care. And now, really, I'm going to talk to you about two men, both Frenchmen, both uh, part of the kind of Napoleonic army. The Frenchman, Jean-Francois Percy, Surgeon General to Napoleon, inventor of the Verst Padded Field Ambulance, a mobile operating theatre. The other guy I'm going to talk to you about, another Frenchman, Dominique Jean Larray, military surgeon in the French Revolutionary Army and the inventor of the flying carriage, the Ambulance Volante. And this ambulance is just like a, a little carriage pulled by horses. Okay, I, I thought for a second thought you were going to describe a flying ambulance, and I thought, how the hell has this not been mentioned before? <laughs> <laughs> why, why have they not? <laughs> what an incredible leap that was! <laughs> of course, as we all know, he invented the hovering ambulance. Um, <laughs> So. so Dominic Jean Larey, he'd been present in Paris during the storming of the Bastille on the 14th of July 1789 and he'd served as a doctor for the French Navy. Despite being only 23, he put his medical skills to use treating the wounded and used improvised ambulances to ferry the injured to field hospitals. And so during the Revolutionary Wars of the early 1790s, Larey set out to improve improvised ambulances. He noticed the speed of the gun carriages being pulled by the horse artillery units and realised this is what we could be doing to pull people off the battlefield and make them better so it's a jury and interesting there's a lot of innovation as well Larray when the Napoleon's campaign in Egypt he swapped the horses for camels who were better suited to the desert sands and I actually thought Crane if you were injured on the battlefield I think they'd go get this guy a camel regardless of where it was (laughs) (laughs) Larray's ambulance volante would be staffed by a driver, stretcher bearers and trained personnel from the medical corps who could provide a first response and remove the injured from the battlefield. Mm. And that his theory was if you get them off the battlefield, you, you, you work on them, you're going to improve mortality rates. First trials happened in the Battle of Metz in the summer of 1793. And his following year, Larray's system of rapid removal and treatment, including amputation, was implemented across the French army. But there's another guy I mentioned right at the start, Jean-Francois Percy. He rose to become Surgeon General in Napoleon's army. And Percy was more of a military man than a humanitarian man. He thought getting people off the battlefield onto an ambulance, that is the wrong approach. He said, we should go to those injured people on the battlefield, prioritise the ones who are 
not so injured who could potentially be kind of treated and return to the battlefield first and fight yeah fight again oh wow so yeah there was a, a massive disagreement and they another disagreement between them was that Larray was a massive advocate of amputation he would look at your leg and go ah chop it off yeah he was known for chop it like he could remove a limb in under two minutes oh dear <laughs> although that's what you want you don't need yeah. to be a long, drawn-out affair, that is a, do you? That's a fair point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is a fair point. <laughs> is he then yeah. cauterising it? Sort of, what's he doing? Is he just lop? I mean, what's the? how it's, exact is this? It doesn't. That feels like it's quite a sort of like an axe job, doesn't it? My knowledge of amputations are almost exclusively from kind of seafaring films, like Master yeah, and Commander, yeah, yeah. where it's like, right, bite down on this rag, and you just see yeah. the guy get a sore out. Yeah. And you're like, oh, my God. Thank God for, uh, for anaesthetic, eh? That's yes. So you're saying Percy basically he, he so he was saying that the less injured you were, yeah. the more likely you were to be rescued from the He would look across the battlefield at injured people and he'd go, Who's the least injured? I'm gonna go treat yeah. that person with a view to getting them back into the battle. Larray is more humanitarian. Who's most injured, whose life is most at threat? I will I will try and So if you want to get off the them. battlefield your best chance is to try and pretend that your <laughs> life altering injury is actually yeah. just a scratch. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I think it's, it's mainly my thumb actually. It's just you know when you get a hangnail but it's actually quite sore. <laughs> <laughs> that is your best chance, isn't it? Wow, okay. And Percy and Larray are knocking about at the same time. So if you're lying injured on the battlefield, you've got to see who's closer. You, you've got to figure out quite quickly whether to play up or play down your injury in order yeah. to get the best treatment. <laughs> what you don't want is to see the two people who are in charge arguing. <laughs> <laughs> Come to a decision quickly! <laughs> wow, that's incredible. Yeah, so, I mean, the, you see the development of the ambulance, really. It comes on the battlefield, and it transferred to civilian life in the 1870s when the Venerable Order of St. John, heard of that before, established the St. John's Ambulance Association in England and Wales. This is fascinating to me, because I never... It's hard to imagine a world without ambulances. It's hard, but... Yeah. yeah. In 18... Like, their, their mission in 1877 was basically the St. John's Ambulance, the Order of St. John, was to go out and teach industrial workers, coal miners, railway employees, how to respond to injuries. So they're teaching the people who are most at risk how to treat for each other and provide first aid, and then, you know, get that person into such a position that they could then be taken to hospital. Yeah. So ambulance brigades followed around from 1887 when the St John's Ambulance Brigade was set up and they began to provide ambulance services across England and Wales until the creation of the NHS in 1948. Although some hospitals and some local authorities did fund ambulances of their own. So it's only really since 1948, the development of the NHS, that in the UK at least, you can hit 999. Call yourself an ambulance. Well, well, well. I am so glad I'm living now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You, one quick question. You say that, obviously, the development of the ambulance came from the battlefield, from those battlefields. In 1877, they, they got rid of the camel idea, haven't they? <laughs> so if you, if you call for an ambulance in Merthyr, yeah. you wouldn't be looking down the high street waiting for the camel to come over the, over the brow of the hill, would you? Don't worry, Nan, it's all right. I can see the hump. <laughs> You're going to be okay. Oh, it's a double humper. I love those ones. 
<laughs> yeah, that is what you want, isn't it, though, to be fair? Get slotted between the humps. Yeah. That feels far more comfortable. If I've got a dodgy hip, I don't want to be on top of a, a single hump lying over it. Yeah, you want to be slotted between the humps. <laughs> Slot me in. Like, like toast in a toast rack. That's where I want to be. <laughs> Neatly slotted in. It's gonna be all right now. Do you know have you ever seen in westerns? Like there's plenty of in western films. It's like when guys have been shot and their, their mate will just throw them over the back of the horse and like yeah, right. Like yeah. that's one thing. That's a one of those a weird historical fear I've got that I'll find myself in the wild west to having been shot and I'll have to sit lay on the back of a horse like bumbling along back to some <laughs> barely qualified doctor who's also a barber. Yes. It's also the, it's the smelly end of a horse as well, isn't it? Yeah. Let's be honest. You're not getting the best real estate there. No. Drape me over the front, please. At least over the neck. Why am I hanging over the arse of the horse when I'm already clearly in a lot of pain? Is this to try and keep me awake? Is this the idea? Is this smell's going to keep me from, sort of, <laughs> from drifting off and dying? And I'm allergic to horses. <laughs> so I'm turning to the doctors in agony. Annoyed because of the smell and with a serious case of the sniffles as well. <laughs> the tail's been swatting me in the face yeah, for the whole yeah. 40 minute journey. First things first, let's get this man some Pyroton. <laughs> we haven't invented that. <laughs> ah, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm really, really sorry. What are the, okay, boot zone. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Right, let's talk about the long arm of the law, the old bill, or as my par- as my dad still refers to the fuzz. Really, uh, really. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if um, yeah, whenever the my fuzz. mother was driving, he'd be he'd, he'd say, "Oh, fuzz, slow down." I thought that only happened in like Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. I didn't realise it happened in Carmarthen. I know. Yes, yeah, weird. My dad worked for Lewisham Council in the mid seventies, and I think he brought back. Cockney terms for the police <laughs> to Wales. Um, the Romans, of course, they did have daytime law and order enforcers, uh, a quasi-police force called the Cohorts Urbani, who were the ancestor, really, of the modern-day gendarme or carabinieri. But as Roman influence faded during the Middle Ages, particularly in Britain, so too did those ideas of policing. Now, the British model of local policing and unarmed constables has emerged as a counterpoint to the European concept of a national police force. Because we do have a, a different attitude, or historically we have done in the UK, um, because the idea of a national police force, like you had, say, in Ireland or in France or in Italy or in Spain, you know, the man-at-arms, the literal translation of gendarme, in the UK... Uh, the sort of Pelian um, uh, principles of policing was sort of uh, policing by consent. So, you know, the coppers didn't have guns, for instance. They just had, in the 50s, right. those, those crap little wooden truncheons. Oh, yeah. I should have been hit over the head with one of them. It's like being hit over the head with a rolling pin. You'd be like, piss off, mate. Now, um, our starting point is with Alfred the Great, King of Anglo-Saxon England in the 9th century. And it was his period that the traditional office of the Shireeve or the Sheriff was created to serve as the official of a local area, i.e. the Shire. And that person was responsible for the maintenance of uh, peace. Now, the King's Peace or the Queen's Peace, according to the present monarch, in essence, it was to assert the King's authority in a divided land. But these sheriffs... 
you know, they had no police force in the modern sense at their disposal. So court officers such as the bailiff, the constable, they had particular roles to perform and they didn't function as a quasi-police force either. So, you know, the sheriff, it was difficult for them to cope. Now, the way they did it, it's not really that removed from Hollywood's vision of the Wild West and, you know, deputies, having a deputy in time of need. So for the 19th century American frontier, read medieval Britain, now in the absence of a police force, the sheriff levied and appointed the men of the county to provide unit strength. Now, this temporary body was known as the power of the county. And um, you know, the posse... So you're saying that basically he, they had, so he had no official force with which to govern these areas, that he had to govern on behalf of the king. Yeah, well, listen to this, right? Yeah. Any man over the age of 15 as long as they were able-bodied and not in holy orders, could be called up and they had no right of refusal. No! Imagine being a copper at 15. <laughs> and also, you no. don't want to be a copper. Yeah. Like, so, against so the, so your the, will. So the Latin name for this group is the Posse uh, Comitatus. If you said no to posse duty, you ran the risk of forfeiting property paying a fine or even serving a period in the local jail. Now, the idea... I'd, I'd struggle as a copper now at the age of 43. The idea of being a copper at the age of 15. In medieval Britain as well, when people are tough. <laughs> You'd have such a weird CV as well when you, when you went for your first job. It would say paper round and copper <laughs> at the age of... <laughs> Those are the two things I've done. Also, like... You can't, you're not carrying a lot of authority at 15. No. You can't be... T- no. who's, who's listening to you? Exactly. Some, for some people, your voice is sort of in that mid-break as yeah. well. Hello, excuse me, Mister. You can't do that. Oh yeah, excuse me, Mister. I've got, it's actually that actually brought me out in goosebumps. The idea of being a fifteen-year-old copper. Anyway, <laughs> absolutely. I think it's worth saying, by the way, to any fifteen-year-olds listening, we're saying this as if any three of us at this point in our life would have any kind of weight or authority if we went out. Yes. I think if I if I approached uh, you know someone doing something wrong in the corner uh, in the street corner and said something they would die. I can't imagine I'd have any weight. Would you? Do you think we would? No. no. Maybe. Do you think you'd have a police presence about you? If do you think <laughs> you'd have that about you? I don't know. Maybe the uniform adds okay, a certain weight. It, yeah. But I don't imagine the uniform was that good back then. Yeah. But you're 15. Is the uniform going to fit? Is the hat falling off your head? Imagine being a cop in a uniform that was far too big. <laughs> oh my god. Anyway. Uh, the posse had military functions as well as functions related to law and order. So it could be called out as a militia during times of crisis, you know, if there were threats of invasion during the Wars of the Roses or during the struggles between the Roundheads and the Cavaliers during the Civil War. But for the most part, the posse operated as a kind of needs-must police force. So it was always temporary and it was always at the discretion of the sheriff and sometimes it was armed and sometimes it was not. Again, a 15-year-old copper with a gun... <laughs> Yep. <laughs> a nightmare. Yep. And yet in the modern world, the frontline police officer, at least in the British tradition, is called a constable and not, you know, a possum. So hence 999 brings a constabulary rather than the posse. So this reflects the decline in the power and authority of the sheriff over time and the emergence of magistrates, you know, justices of the peace and their constables as primarily responsible for local law and order. Now, the office of constable, which is you know, still a word we use today, that could be found already in various contexts. Um, 
and they often had duties that corresponded in part to those of a modern police officer. They were, they were, and they still are in York, Liverpool, and Canterbury. Cathedral constables, for example, right. were responsible for maintaining law and order within the cathedral's grounds, properly oh. known as its close. That I think I could do. Actually, I think that feels closer to my ballpark. Of I reckon you could have a thirty-year career and one incident. And I reckon it would be all right. Now, there were high constables in, in Edinburgh appointed by the Scottish Parliament to enforce a citywide curfew to run from 10 o'clock at night till the following morning. And uh, the high constables, they comprised the merchants and craftsmen, sort of the city's wealthier people. Then you had university constabularies in Oxford and Cambridge in the early 19th century. And that was to maintain law and order amongst the student population, to stop them from stealing traffic cones, etc. Um <laughs> and then you had nightly curfews within the colleges and university grounds. Eton, as in Eton College, the school, uh, they had it, they had their own police force as well, and that stood apart from the rest of Buckinghamshire County Constabulary between 1859 and 1892. They had their own police force until 1892. Wow. Now, even with the advent of professional policing in the 19th century, you still had context-specific constables. So there were the railway police, the harbour and dock police, canal and river police, airport police, market police, parks police. Again, parks police. I reckon I could do that. <laughs> yeah, but in the summer, people lighting barbecues. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, no, no. you're telling people not to play football on the grass. I think I can do that. And <laughs> yeah. if people ignore me, what's the, how bad is it? <laughs> yeah. At the end of the day, you're in a nice park. It does make me think, actually, that maybe being... A sheriff in medieval Britain wasn't as cushy a job as I assumed it was. If you're try- having to amass a little sort of posse of 15-year-olds to make sure that you keep control of your area and you know that the king is probably going to kill you if you fail to do that, maybe. Yeah, it, yeah. Sounds, it sounds like hassle. Yeah. <laughs> and the one thing I want to avoid in my life is hassle. I'm beginning to think, Ellis, that there is no role in medieval Britain that I would happily have taken yeah. and felt comfortable in. I, if you've asked me, I'd have assumed that, oh, well, maybe Sheriff would have been one that I'd have taken and would have given me some kind of sort of... Yeah, I've seen Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. <laughs> but no, it was all awful. It was all awful. <laughs> Anyway, that's the end of this week's episode. Um, if you have an email, if you have any correspondence you'd like to send us, send it to hello at owatertime.com. And also don't forget to leave us a five-star review. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.